Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Ryan Stackhouse. Today, we're rolling out the red carpet. Michael Sullivan, one of our own here on the German Studies channel, will be joining us to discuss his new book, Disruptive Power, Catholic Women, Miracles, and Politics in Modern Germany, 1918 to 1965. Disruptive Power, available from University of Toronto Press as of 2018, has just been awarded the Waterloo Center for German Studies Book Prize for a, quote, important book that makes the reader think again about the larger narratives that have so long shaped the story of German culture and history. O'Sullivan mixes politics and gender into a masterful cultural history tracing the life and times of Bavarian mystic Theresa Neumann through much broader debates about power politics, secularization, and church authority, defining the, quote, shattered narrative of 20th century German history. Disruptive Power examines how interactions between the sacred and the secular shaped German history from Weimar through the Nazi era and into the post-war Federal Republic beyond. Disruptive Power offers fascinating insight to anyone seeking to understand the decline of political Catholicism and the rise of Christian democracy as broader cultural currents in German history. But enough from me, we are fortunate enough to have the man himself with us here today. So without further ado, Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. How does it feel to be on the other side of the microphone for a change? Uh, It feels strange. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to begin with, what was it that first attracted you to the study of history? So my interest in history goes way back to, in many ways, the start of my childhood. My father was a community college professor, history professor. Uh, He got his PhD from the University of Buffalo in French history and was one of, you know, had the privilege by going into academia of working uh, with a lot of very brilliant people. But he was uh, certainly among the most brilliant I've met in my life in his own way. So I had uh, history in the household growing up. And so that was where I started. And in many ways, my story with history and German history is a story of mentorship, starting with my father, but then continuing on when I went to Canisius College, 
although I was so passionate about history, I wasn't even sure whether or not that was going to be my primary major when I started college. But I, my first semester uh, at Canisius College in Buffalo, I took a class with uh, Larry Eugene Jones. And for anyone who has been through uh, grad school in uh, German history, they've probably read his book from the 1980s, uh, German Liberalism During the Weimar Republic. And he was just uh, an electric teacher and professor. And he mentored me very carefully when I was an undergrad. And then I went to the University of North Carolina to get my PhD in German history, where I worked with Konrad Jarosz, uh, and he was a great mentor there. And I was fortunate to be at North Carolina at a time where it was uh, just a great time to be studying German history there. Conrad was there. So too was Christopher Browning, who I'm sure many of our listeners know, and he was also a wonderful mentor. And toward the tail end of my time there, Karin Hagemann was hired. And that was actually very good for me in that it, that was just at the time where I was really becoming very interested in the history of women's gender and sexuality studies. So she came toward the tail end of my time there, but she still made quite an impact on my work. A lot of excellent influences for the, for the Forge, as it were. What was the story of this book? How did you come to write Disruptive Power? All right. So that that's also a very long story. <laughs> um, so I, my initial interest in the field of Catholic history, and I've been sort of thinking about European Catholic history and German Catholic history for a long time. And that goes uh, in many ways back to my days as an undergraduate at Canisius College. And I was uh, I served as a research in, uh, assistant for Larry Jones in my undergraduate years. And at the time, he was beginning to work on an aspect of his new book, which is about to come out on the uh, the non-Nazi uh, right in the Weimar, at the end of the Weimar Republic. But at that time, he was really looking carefully at the role of the conservative Catholic aristocracy in Weimar politics. And I thought about how his work kind of might intersect with some things I was interested in from my own life, I guess, in some ways when I was applying to grad school. And that was, you know, my my uh, father's family grew up in uh, a very, I, I guess you could describe it as a heavy Irish Catholic subculture in South Buffalo. And my mother grew up in kind of a rural town that was also very Catholic with a lot of German influence on it. And Larry was kind of looking at the high politics of Catholicism. And I decided I was ultimately, in the long run, very interested in the social and cultural history of Catholicism. So that's what I worked on with Conrad at the University of North Carolina. And I wrote a dissertation about uh, German Catholicism, and I guess secularization trends. And toward the end, I really started looking very heavily at women's organizations and the role of women in the Catholic Church. But I really, I made a surprise discovery when I was in the archives in Germany when I was working on the dissertation, I just came across folders and I wasn't even sure what they were. Uh, so I ordered them and I, I think they were labeled something, uh, something like miraculous occurrences, something like that. And this was in the archbishopric, the ar archive of the archbishopric in, in Cologne. And these files had these uh, very vivid stories about faith and miracles, Catholic miracles in 20th century Germany, primarily the stigmata of Theresa Neumann of Konersreuth and uh, the Marian apparitions in the post-45 era in the Bavarian town of Heraldsbach. 
And Cologne wasn't even the home diocese for these events. They were just tracking how Catholics who lived in Cologne were interested in these things and traveling there and things like that. So I filed it away. Maybe I wrote 20 pages about it in the dissertation. But after I finished uh, my PhD and I was interested in doing more research and forming my dissertation into a book, I, I really became fascinated with how can I work these miracle stories into this larger history of Catholicism that I was writing. And my research just became kind of endless and was going on and on. And I was putting out a lot of articles and book chapters and doing a lot of conference presentations, but the book just wasn't getting done. And I finally spoke to a couple people who set me straight. Uh, one was a scholar in Germany named Maria Anna Zumholz, and another was my grad school colleague, uh, Adam Seip. And both of them in different conversations basically said, uh, Michael, you have more than one book here. You know, you need to focus on one thing at a time. And they were right. Uh, I had a whole book with just on the miracles, and that was kind of what I was closest to in terms of what I was looking at in the archives. So that kind of broke the logjam. And it caused me to then write this book that really focused on uh, the stigmata of Theresa Neumann of Konersreut, but also this larger incidence of faith in miracles that I traced from about the era of World War I to uh, right on the eve of the Second Vatican Council in Germany. Why study the miracles, though? What are the big picture arguments you want readers to take away from this? When I was writing the book, I knew I had some really good stories to tell, right? When you're talking about faith in Catholic miracles, you get a whole cast of colorful anecdotes and really interesting historical figures, some of whom were very eccentric. So there was a good story to tell. But when you want to publish an academic book, right, as your question poses, you need to think about what your scholarly contribution is going to be. And that was, in some ways, it was much easier to write the stories and the narratives than it was to come up with the arguments. But what I settled on was, uh, you know, I wanted to make arguments about three different issues. All right, if uh, the listeners can bear with me for a second, those three issues, I want to make arguments about uh, religion. I wanted to make an argument about uh, gender and religion, and I wanted to make an argument about religion and politics. So I'll start with number one, and that is more than anything else, uh, this history, right? It's a history of religion, right? When you're looking at Catholic miracles uh, or faith in Catholic miracles, you're talking about uh, or, uh, you know a book about religion. So when I first learned about the prevalence of uh, stigmata, uh, particularly in the 1920s, and uh, apparitions, particularly in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, apparitions of the Virgin Mary, that is, in the Catholic regions of Germany, I realized I had discovered something that was overlooked and relatively new. Uh, I didn't, there weren't too many people who'd published on these things, and, and, and they were new and surprising to me. But what did they mean? So I think to our, uh, as historians, our view of religion it means that expressions of piety and religiosity that we frequently view as traditionalist or as old-fashioned, it means they really endured in the modern era. What was surprising about the finding is we already knew there were um, several incidents of faith and miracles in the 19th century, but what, you know, in, in David Blackburn's book about marping and is the most classic example of this. But what we didn't know as a scholarly community is that these practices really endured well into the 20th century in the modern era. So that makes this yet another story about faith persisting deeper into the modern period than was previously expected. 
right? So that's one thing. But I wanted to push my argument on religion even further. So I also view the movements surrounding these miracles in a deeper way. They occurred at moments of great tumult in German and Catholic history. So as the country flipped between democracy and dictatorship and back again, and then the church at this very same time was struggling to maintain its subculture that it had constructed during the 19th century. So in the midst of these larger historical changes, what I found was that a surprisingly large group of radical traditionalists challenged the institutional church from its conservative flank over the desire from even other conservative priests, politicians, lay leaders, and bishops to modernize and rationalize the faith enough to integrate it into a modern nation state and a um, pluralistic, at least in terms of Christianity, uh, nation state, because it was a Protestant majority, and to retain urban and middle class followers. So the miracles that occurred at these rural locations of Bickensdorf, uh, Bickensdorf, excuse me, Schipach, Konersreuth, and Haraldsbach, and many other places, and I studied them in the book, they became the focal point, in my opinion, of a rebellion by deeply pious Catholics who accused the institutional church, but also its religious political parties and representatives, of lacking authenticity. This caused them to demand a faith where believers had direct access to God through miraculous intercession, and to rely less on the coherent doctrine of the Catholic Church and the guidance of the clergy and church hierarchy. So a result of the popularity and persistence of faith in these miracles and the movements that surrounded around them was to create an individualization of faith and to unintentionally weaken institutional Catholicism. So what I argue in the book is that as Germany transitioned from a country whose religious life was dominated by Christian institutions to one where the population really developed diffuse beliefs in multiple supernatural and spiritual entities and traditions, conservative Catholics unintentionally helped uh, to accelerate this de development. I don't say they were solely responsible for it, but I view the faith in figures like Theresa Neumann as a symptom of it and a factor that helped to accelerate this change. So that's the argument I make in the book about religion. But I also uh, wanted to make this book about women's history, to an extent also gender history and the history of sexuality, although I would say the role of women's history plays a much bigger role within the book. And part of why I wanted that to be a big part of the book is because most of the seers and vis visionaries that I study in this book were women or girls. So it's um, a book where you have these movements, where you have women and girls as the focal point. And so I thought that I could say something a little bit new in this regard as well. So the book certainly examines the place of women in German Catholicism, but certain types of women. So it explores how conservative and pious women and sacred figures, such as the stigmatist Theresa Neumann, it shows how they could attain agency within a deeply patriarchal church. Now, this is something of a vexing subject that I think is often overlooked by some academic historians, although others have written about it. So if I can, if I can generalize a little bit here, most historians of Christianity and Catholicism, they tend to have little interest in gender studies, right? And so a lot of church histories exclude gender studies or women's history and things like that. And on the other hand, a lot of feminist scholars aren't always interested in writing about religious women. So that's kind of uh, accounts a little bit, I think, for the lack of coverage for this particular topic. 
but there are a few people who've written about it. And my book tries to take a very nuanced look at the topic in light of the scholarship that does exist. So I think on the one hand, there are some scholars who view Catholic women in the modern era as having been manipulated by clergy and church leadership in some way. So what's really interesting here is that women, they formed a majority in the modern era, at least in Germany and in many other European countries. They formed a majority of those who attended church and engaged in the sacramental life of the church. And they were usually responsible for the religious education of their children in the home for those who are mothers. It was also women who sustained Catholic parties within Germany, Catholic and Christian parties from the 20s to the 60s, the era that I'm studying. If it weren't for the mass participation and loyalty of women at the ballot box to the center party in the 1920s and early 30s and the Bavarian People's Party in Bavaria in the early 20s and 30s, and after World War II to uh, the Christian Democratic Union and the Christian Social Union, those parties would never have been as influential as they were or as they became. So the scholars of the past who uh, adhe- you know, adhere to this manipulation thesis, they argue that this patriarchal church and this patriarchal environment largely repressed and took advantage of women through cultural pressure, pushing them into the private sphere and attracting them to, to the church through emotional forms of piety, such as devotion to the cult of the Sacred Heart uh, and uh, worship of uh, the Virgin Mary as a saint. And those forms of piety received a lot of emphasis at the start of the modern age, starting in the late 19th century. Alternatively, there's a feminization of religion uh, thesis, where another set of scholars view women's access to important spiritual roles actually as empowering, not as something that was regressive. And uh, a lot of people who look at miracles push that argument. And to an extent, David Blackburn did in his uh, book on Marping in about the 19th century. So the fact that most stigmatists or witnesses to Marian apparitions were girls and young women, it causes many academics and scholars uh, to view uh, religious miracles as a way to subvert the hierarchy of the church and place women uh, in a position of power. So my thesis here, right, is that neither of these views is entirely correct. On the one hand, the stigmatists and seers uh, that I study, they had very little agency. If they did not have strong male protectors and advocates, and if they, then the bishops and the clergy and powerful laymen typically destroyed their credibility and discredited their miracles and took away their platform as public figures. On the other hand, the central case study of the book looks at Teresa Neumann of Corners Right. And she actually, I argue, wound up wielding immense power that only grew throughout her lifetime. So, But the way I make sense of this is that faith in the miraculous could provide a platform for female empowerment, but only when women, look, women worked carefully within the patriarchy of the church and the patriarchy of uh, rural locations more, more broadly to gain enough male proponents to protect them without allowing those prominent par- patriarchs to overly dominate them. And then my final argument here is about politics, and I'll try to keep this brief because I've been going on for a while at this point. And my, uh, I guess what I'm trying to do with the book in regards to politics is I simply want wanted a history that could show some of the connections between everyday religion, everyday faith, everyday religious practice, and the role of religion in German politics. You know, the German Center Party. I thought and and continue to think was very crucial to the Weimar era. I think it was crucial to sustaining Weimar democracy throughout the 20s when it was successful. And the collapse, the complete and sudden collapse of the center party and the Bavarian People's Party in the early 1930s 
has a lot to do with why democracy, you know, failed and and Nazism rose. And and then of course after the war, the Christian uh, Christian democracy became very dominant with a lot of very elite Catholic politicians leading that party. Although the party, of course, was interconfessional. And so I wanted to trace some of the connections between everyday faith and the successes and failures, I guess, of par- uh, of Catholicism as a part of parliamentary democracy in Germany. So. For when it comes to religion, I'm arguing for a view of religion that opposes narratives that argue that people became disenchanted with uh, religion and spirituality in the modern world. But I'm also trying to show how these particular miracles represented a kind of conservative traditionalist rebellion that ultimately and unintentionally weakened and helped to secularize Catholicism in Germany. As far as my argument about women, I'm trying to sort of complicate views of the role of women in the church by looking at the tightrope that women had to walk in order to gain autonomy and power within a patriarchy like the Catholic Church, like uh, the German Center Party or the Christian Democratic Union. And as far as politics go, I'm trying to point out that everyday matters of faith had an impact upon why political Catholicism failed at the end of the Weimar era and why Christian democracy was able to succeed after World War II. And this would be exactly the ambitious and encompassing scope that we're talking about. (laughs) So you begin by setting the stage for what you described as a generally overlooked revival of faith in the miraculous in Germany between the 1920s and the 1960s. So as you mentioned already, the Catholic Church had been promoting the cult of Mary and the cult of the Sacred Heart for several decades before you're raising the curtain on 1918. The question is, how widespread were reports of miracles in the aftermath of the war, and what kinds of debates were they sparking within the church? So I would say, and, and, and I think one piece of scholarship that really, I, I guess, helped me here was Patrick Houlihan's book about World War I, where he had some chapters about how soldiers at the front oftentimes would engage in what maybe one could call miraculous thinking, and how prayer to the Virgin Mary and kind of faith in small everyday miracles uh, was prominent at the front. So, I do think the watershed of the wartime experience, both on the home front and at the front itself, helped to spark this uh, revival of Catholic miracles in the 20th century and, and to accelerate it. Now, I think your question was how, how part of your question was how widespread. And what I saw happening in the 20s, based on my research, is that uh, you had. Uh, what was particularly popular in the 20s was cases of uh, stigmata becoming very popular or things related to blood and bleeding. What I trace in my first chapter were some of the predecessors to Theresa Neumann. You had, for example, a seer named Barbara Weigand, who was from a small town called Schipach, who I guess she was active prior to World War I. She became particularly popular during World War I, and then sort of there was some afterlife to her popularity after the war. And you had six or seven others like her, 
perhaps the most prominent predecessor or really contemporary to Theresa Neumann was uh, Anna Maria Goebel of Bickensdorf, which was in the Diocese of uh, Trier in Western Germany. And I don't think you could say that there was a concerted national movement prior to the rise of Theresa Neumann. But what you do see is lots of different local seers, some of whom were stigmatics, some of whom weren't. There was like a a bleeding picture in Aachen that attracted a lot of attention. And it's almost like these little dots that are occurring and initially are not necessarily tied or related to one another. But you, you began to get religious journalists covering them, pilgrims traveling to see them. And a lot of that laid the groundwork then for the rise of Theresa Neumann. And she was kind of her stigmata in many ways was occurred at the right time, in the right place, in the right manner, that it just attracted the attention both nationally and throughout Europe of pilgrims who were interested in these sorts of phenomena. So the Neumann case, I, the number that often gets thrown around for the 20s is between 26 and 28 when visiting her was much easier to do for various reasons. About you know, A lot of people say about 500,000 people. Uh, traveled to uh, Konosreut to, to see her, uh, to witness her stigmata. The other ones were much smaller. They were much uh, more local in scale. Occasionally, you'd have outsider, you know, an event where outsiders came uh, to, to see a stigmatic or something like that, but nothing like uh, the scale of Theresa Neumann. And what also happened with Theresa Neumann was a lot of people experienced her stigmata from afar. They didn't travel to Konersreut, but there was a huge press that was churning out lots of different Catholic journalists, many of whom were not affiliated with Neumann at all, others of whom were, but they were churning out lots of content about her miracles and what was happening in Konersreut. And Catholics all over Germany, all over Europe, and also in the United States were consuming it and experiencing her stigmata in that way. So let's let's discuss her. She explodes onto the scene in 1926 amid this broader discourse of Marian apparitions and stigmata in the post-war era. You describe her as fulfilling the needs of a Catholic subculture in search of less mediated piety to process the dislocations of Weimar. What's the story of her rise to prominence and how does she manage to satisfy those desires? She grew up in 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 Konersreut. That was the town where she grew up and lived her her whole life in. And Konersreut is in the Oberpfalz, Oberpfalz, excuse me, uh, the Upper Palatinate, uh, which is in Bavaria, and it's in a borderland area near um, what was then Czechoslovakia. And uh, Theresa Neumann was born just before uh, the turn of the century, and she became a public figure in 1926. Prior to becoming a public figure, she was the eldest daughter in a family of 11 children. Her father was a tailor. And Theresa Neumann, as the oldest child, was essentially a laborer. And she actually filled a very important role in the family as a laborer in helping to provide for the family uh, as she was growing up. She uh, did grow up in a very pious and religious household. It's hard to know exactly how pious because most of the histories we have of it were written after she was famous, largely by people who were invested in proving her sanctity, proving the legitimacy of her miracles, and so on. She wanted to be, uh, allegedly wanted to be a missionary in Africa. This was her goal, um, that she 
essentially gave up on during World War One when her father fought at the front, and she had to help provide for the family throughout the war and in, in, in work and help take care of the family while he was away. What seems to have been a real breaking point in her life was there was a fire in Konersreit in 1918, and she was part of a fire brigade to try to put it out. And in the process, she suffered uh, a pretty severe injury. And after this injury, uh, she just seemed to be plunged into this downward spiral of psychological and physical problems. And after the injury, she kept re-injuring herself. She kept falling over almost inexplicably and, and injuring herself again. And the list of her, the, the medical problems she had is almost unthinkable. You know, she, she had several falls. She had severe back pain, partial paralysis. She had trouble with bowel control. She went blind, struggled with blindness. Uh, she suffered severe weight loss due to nausea. She had body spasms that were so bad they often caused her to pass out from the pain. She went deaf in one year. She had gastric ulcers and boils and bed sores. And so uh, she went from being this uh, very important contributor to her family to very quickly really becoming a, a dependent for the family who was bedridden and that everybody had to take care of. And uh, she was always being taken to Waldsassen, which was the closest hospital which I believe was about six kilometers uh, from the town, to be studied and so on. She got a pension from the state. Uh, the diagnosis, the medical diagnosis she received from the medical establishment was hysteria. So this is then where the miracles come in. Uh, she started to experience religious miracles in 1923. In between 1923 and 1925, she began to have some of her medical ailments alleviated, and she argued miraculously. Uh, the saint, Teresa of Liso was a saint she was always very consumed with in terms of devotion. And so on the day of her beatification, she was able to see again, and then she experienced another cure when Teresa of Liso was canonized. Uh, and then uh, during Lent of 1926, Teresa Neumann, that was the first time she claimed to experience uh, symptoms of stigmata. And this developed into a pattern from 1926, really for the rest of her life, for the most part, where she would experience what became known as the Friday suffering. And that was every week, uh, and with special intensity every year on Good Friday, she would, uh, she would experience the stigmata. She would become ecstatic, usually, at midnight on uh, Thursday night and suffered you know, and, and her eyes suffered for 13 hours, uh, you know, into uh, Friday night or, or 1 a.m. or so on Saturday morning, I guess is what it would really be. And she bled from her head, heart, side, hands, and feet right during this Friday suffering. And she would see the passion of Jesus broken into 50 scenes. And this developed into a pattern or almost an act for visitors where she would act out what she was seeing uh, in the 50 scenes of the Passions of Jesus of Nazareth, and her local priest, Father Joseph Naber, would narrate for pilgrims what was happening. And there was one observer who described it as a drama of life and movement, where he would say it was happening and she would be acting it out. And after 
you know, her ecstasies, she would fall into an infantile state where she could barely was almost like an infant, barely responsive, could only give one word answers to questions. And that was then followed by what was known as a state of exalted rest, where she answered questions by pilgrims and visitors in the voice of Jesus himself. And so she claimed other powers. She, she claimed to have other visions of other saints and other biblical scenes. She claimed to have the power of clairvoyance. For example, she, she often would identify strangers before they introduced themselves. She spoke in Aramaic during visions. And her most controversial claim was that she claimed that she fasted from 1926 into her death, subsisting only on communion hosts. And that was her certainly her most the most disputed claim that she made. Okay. And so from 26 to 28, this is where she was kind of at her high point of popularity in the era of the Weimar Republic. About 500,000 pilgrims came to see her. And uh, the bishopric of Regensburg disputed this popularity. They didn't claim that the miracle was fraudulent. What the bishopric said was, we need to be allowed to investigate this to be able to tell the faithful whether this is a real miracle or whether something else is going on here before we turn this into a site that takes in hundreds of thousands of, of pilgrims. And so there was immense tension between the bishopric and the family in Conor's rights, ultimately. So when you look at the records of all of this, you get a, a few different viewpoints. You get the viewpoint of the everyday pilgrim, and some of uh, some of their descriptions that would appear occasionally in archival records or published in, in newspapers or Catholic publications about the miracles. And then you would get the writings of elites who were deeply invested either in opposing the legitimacy of this miracle or trying to prove its legitimacy. And so from that, you can begin to tease out some of the reasons why this miracle was so attractive. So I think certainly you get lots of stories of pilgrims, most of whom were Catholic, but I would say there were some who weren't Catholic who came also, uh, some out of curiosity who then felt like seeing this woman bleeding from her eyes was a meaningful experience, others of whom were were already you know deeply devoted and ensconced in the Catholic tradition and, and found it meaningful in that way. But a lot of everyday pilgrims, they were interested in everyday concerns. They would come to Theresa Neumann and ask her in a state of exalted rest about what was happening to their um, lost loved ones, people who died in the war sometimes, and ask them, you know, are they in purgatory? Are they in heaven? What's this, you know, what can you tell me about this? And so I do think that the tumult of the time certainly contributed to the popularity of uh, belief in this sort of thing. And it went beyond Catholicism. There were all sorts of miracle workers who were not tied to the Catholic tradition also. A few of whom I mentioned in my book, but uh, a lot more of whom are studied in great detail by uh, the scholar Monica Black, who is going to have a book about miracles and demons in 20th century German history coming out uh, later in this year. So uh, I would encourage viewers to look out for that. Now, Ryan, uh, you asked kind of then, I guess, about the 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 argument I make that a lot of Catholics wanted this direct connection with God rather than working through the clergy and working through the bishops, right? And I think that that was something that appealed uh, on one level to the everyday pilgrim in that they, uh, I think a lot of, there were everyday Catholics who who felt like their 
their church and their political party weren't necessarily responding in the way they would have liked to their everyday needs. And in some ways, given what a lot of Germans were experiencing in this era, uh, who could respond to their needs in a way that would that, that would fulfill them, right? A lot of people were going through a lot of tumultuous times and the, and the trauma of the war was pretty intense. But there was also a set of elites who I think became very invested in this. And there was a circle that gathered around Theresa Neumann, which became known as the Konosreit Circle. And a lot of the elites in this circle were, were theologians, were journalists, elites in their own right, some of them even priests, right? And a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them engaged in a certain type of rhetoric that would accuse both the institutional church, the bishops, and the clergy, uh, as well as, uh, and the center party especially became a target for this, of inauthenticity, that they were not authentic Catholics, that they were losing touch with being authentic Catholics. And what bothered them is they felt that the in, both the institutional church and especially the center party was much more concerned with integrating into the German nation state and integrating into the modern way of living and integrating into uh, you know a state where Protestants were in the majority and where an increasingly number of the people were uh, also secular. And so this inauthenticity of the institutions of Catholicism, I think, led a lot of these, what I call kind of traditionalist rebels then to say, well, we are then attracted to this woman in Konersreut, or in other cases, these seers who are seeing images of the Virgin Mary, or in other cases, other stigmatics and saying they have direct access to God. God is showing himself on earth to us for a reason, right? And they adopted in many ways the ca- uh, a rhetoric that the Catholic Church itself put out there, right? But they were then weaponizing it against the Catholic Church. You know, this rhetoric of apocalypse and salvation, right? That the war and the depression and other bad things that have happened to us, that is because we as a society have sinned. This is how they viewed it, right? And to a degree, the Catholic Church with the Fatima apparitions in Portugal adopted a very similar official stance, right, through official and sanctioned forms of piety. But these rebels kind of took it and ran with it and pushed it one step further and in some cases weaponized it against the church by saying, you know, it's not just society as a whole that has sinned, right, by falling away from the church. It's you. It's you, the church, and you, the center party, right? You have become inauthentic Catholics, and you have sinned too. And this is what has created these apocalyptic conditions. God is punishing us. He punished us with the war, Right. And and even some people who traced one miraculous event to the other would say, you know, Barbara Vigand, this uh, seer from World War One, she said that the war was punishment for the sins of Germany. And she said, in order to gain redemption from those sins, we need to build an enormous basilica in her hometown of Schipach. Right. And, w- and you, the church, you didn't accept her. You didn't sanction her miracles. You didn't build her basilica, right? You have failed us, right? And so we are being beset by even more pun- apocalyptic punishments, right? And the only way to gain salvation, right, is through these miraculous movements. These miraculous movements were like uh, God's Hail Mary to try to save everybody, right? To try to show uh, you know, that he exists and to attract more followers and to convert more followers. And you'll only gain redemption by doing the things that Trace Neumann tells you to do and by converting people back to Catholicism and by pushing more traditionalist form of Catholicism. But in the process, it did, I think, 
delegitimized the church to a degree, right? They were disobeying their bishops who said, don't travel and see Teresa Neumann until we have investigated it. They became very angry when the church would question whether or not Teresa Neumann was a legitimate sacred figure or not. On that issue, especially, the Connorsloy circle engages in these vicious debates over legitimacy. You link these to this broader decline of Catholicism as a force in Weimar politics. For the uninitiated, just briefly, who are the Zentrum and the BVP? And then how do the reactions to Neumann reflect these internal tensions tearing apart political Catholicism? I personally think that the center party is this crucial political party to understanding Weimar politics. So the center party was uh, founded shortly after the the unification of Germany in the 1870s and, and, and became a part of uh, the political spectrum, I, I think Jim Ritalik is described as a five-party system in the German Empire, and, and the, Ger- the Center Party was a very important part of that. And they, it was a party of political Catholicism. So it was, uh, in many ways, a response or its popularity in many ways was a response to the Kulturkampf of the 1870s, where the Catholic minority in Germany felt as if they needed their own political party to uh, represent their interests in this newly unified Germany, where the majority was of the country was Protestant, or uh, as Todd Weir has says, you also had the, um, besides uh, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, you had the fourth confession, right? And those who were secular or secularity or secular liberals. But in any case, they felt like they had to have their own political party to protect themselves. And uh, the center party was always a party that dealt with a certain amount of disunity, Right, they were not a party that was based around class interests per se, and so they had people from all different economic classes and, in some ways, different economic walks of life. So it was always a party that had to appeal to Catholic aristocrats, they had to appeal to the Catholic middle class and the urban middle class. They had to appeal to priests and bishops, right, who were not the leaders of the party, but you know there, there was a relationship there. And they had to appeal to the Catholic working class, the Catholic peasant, the Catholic farmer, all right? Um, so uh, it was always a party where uh, religion was the thing that bound everyone together, but they were a pretty diverse group. And they also came from, you know, different parts of the country. You know, the the, the heart of the center party was was really the, in many ways, the, the Catholic Northwest and the Rhineland and Westphalia. They become very important in Weimar politics because they uh, become the kingmaker in many ways in forming coalitions during the Weimar Republic. So uh, they were part of what some people refer to as the ruling coalition of the Weimar Republic. And that was most of the national coalitions made for the national government were coalitions, or many of them were coalitions that had to involve the liberal parties, uh, the Social Democratic Party, and the Catholic Center Party. But they they also would uh, uh, the, the the center party could also be the glue that would bind together, for example, coalitions between the liberal parties, their own Catholic center party, and the parties of the non Nazi right right um, that were you know prominent in the Weimar era as well. And then to answer a question about the Bavarian People's Party, the BVP, this was the Bavarian wing, I guess, of uh, political Catholicism that was founded uh, after 1919. And Bavarian Catholic uh, had a much stronger connection to 
monarchy in the Wittelsbach monarchy of Bavaria, and the fall of that monarchy was upsetting uh, to many of them. And so uh, they founded their own party. And it was, uh, you know, arguably, cer- certainly more monarchist than the center party, the National Center Party, and in many ways more conservative than than the center party. And so you had uh, the the BVP, the Bavarian People's Party, and the Catholic Center Party. They were the two, I guess, wings of political Catholicism. And so political Catholicism, you know, they they because it represented a minority, they were never going to become the most popular party in Germany. But they needed to maintain a certain vote share in order to remain relevant and to in order to retain this status as as kingmaker during the Weimar era. And of course, giving women the right to vote was a godsend for the center party, because just as they were losing a lot of their working class voters, their Catholic working class male voters, um, who had been the heart of that party, uh, women gained the right to vote and women, Catholic women voted in large numbers for this party. But it was a party that was play, always plagued by disunity, but these, this disunity became particularly pronounced during uh, the Weimar era. A lot of people had different opinions about what, what the party should do. And so you had some party elites who wanted to become more of a mainstream party and they wanted to be integrated into the, into the Catholic nation. You also had a working class movement within the center party and a lot of working class leaders who wanted to push the party to the left. You had some elites who wanted to push the party more to the right. You had a lot of very important Catholic aristocrats who were becoming disillusioned with the center party and leaving it for the non-Nazi right. And in other cases, you did have Catholics who left for the Nazi party as well. And so it became extraordinarily difficult for the Catholic uh, center party to hold itself together, especially because the elites ultimately uh, in the national center party, you know, they kept feeling like they had a certain responsibility, right? That they would take the responsibility to often make hard decisions and enter into coalitions with people with whom they disagreed, right? And a lot of Catholics found that frustrating, angering, distasteful, right? That their political party, right, would work in alliance or coalition with uh, these secular liberals, right, who had been their primary antagonists in the Kulturkampf of the 1870s. How could he possibly work with them? Or even worse, with the Social Democrats, who are also, you know, deeply secular and often mocked, you know, Catholic religious faith and things like that. So they became very angry. So what do miracles uh, have to do with all of this? All right. I think that the debate over the authenticity of, especially of Theresa Neumann, reflected these divisions that you had a rural group of Catholics, but not just rural, you know, a lot of them were spread over the country, but people who tended to accuse the center party of inauthenticity, moving too much to the center or to the left, right? And, and viewed them as doing too much of this as betraying the Catholic faith. They tended to believe in Theresa Neumann's miracles and to argue in favor of them. Um, but the people who became very upset about them, in many ways, it was expected, for example, that the socialists or the communists might make fun of the Catholics for believing in Theresa Neumann, right? But the harshest and most intense critics were not the socialists, the secular liberals, or the communists, right? The harshest critics of Theresa Neumann were other Catholics, right? And people became enraged about this. They would devote their lives, in some cases, to trying to prove this as an inauthentic miracle. Even after her death, there was a theologian in Regensburg named Josef Hanauer who spent much of his career trying to churn out books proving 
right? Doing research trying to prove that she was inauthentic and shouldn't be considered for beatification. So why such intense feelings? And I think that she represented more than just uh, one you know, rural woman who claimed to have the stigmata, she represented something larger, right? And people who resented this rebellion against the church and people who tended to view the church in a different way. And I think important here is a doctor named Josef Deutsch, who was one of her biggest critics, and he was a doctor. And he he tended to, uh, he made this argument about how, about science and Catholicism, right? And about how um, natural science pro- w- w- was actually something that strengthened his faith and, and proved right that God had uh, created the world in a certain way, and that uh, Neumann, what he viewed as Neumann's uh, fraudulence, was something that was going to tear all of that down, and it was going to weaken the church, and it was going to make it look bad. And so, you know, she, her, her opponents were just as uh, her fiercest opponents came from within the Catholic Church, and I think this reflected this political fragility within political Catholicism that ultimately helped to doom it at the end of the Weimar Republic. The line that you use that I love so much is the tension between the rational Northwest and the the rationalized Northwest, sorry, and the mystic Bavarian heartland. Yeah, there definitely was this regional divide, right, between uh, the Rhineland and Westphalia, right, which was the heart of the center party in many ways, and uh, Bavaria and the, the home of the people, the, the Bavarian People's Party. You also go on to examine how the Connorsloit circle used religious morality and sexual values to shape gender norms. And I have to say, I absolutely fell into this chapter, particularly the descriptions of the way that Neumann would take people to task. Two-part question again. First, how is Neumann exerting agency within a religious rural patriarchy? And second, how is her gender fluidity and the sentimental piety of her, of her followers shifting norms without transgressing the boundaries of acceptable behavior? Um, yeah, thanks for asking that question. In many ways, this was my favorite chapter to write and the one that I, in many ways, I'm most proud of. So to answer one question, one thing I was trying to look at here was women's autonomy, right? And how, to, how was it that Neumann was able to become such a powerful and enduring figure when other stigmatics in Germany failed to do so, some of whom had very similar stories to her, right? Hit on a lot of the same themes and so on. And so uh, to try to keep it as brief as possible, the thing that um, really struck me here was how she was able to exert power from within a patriarchal milieu. And And the key thing that she did here, I think, was around the request for, by the church, for another examination. Because Scientific examinations tended to be, medical examinations tended to be the way in which critics of miracles could destroy miracle movements. So Neumann had submitted to a 14-day exam that most doctors considered to be inconclusive. And so the bishopric of Regensburg and the Bavarian bishops as a whole, as a group, kept coming back to the family and asking for another exam. And the way Neumann would argue against it was twofold, but I think you know, one thing that she said is that uh, the voice of God told me in the state of an exalted rest that I shouldn't stand for another exam, so I'm not going to stand for another exam, right? And so that was bypassing the clergy through her, her, her own voice. But the most significant thing was her use of contrasting forms of patriarchy. And so her father was adamant that she not have another exam, 
And he argued, you know, we submitted to one exam and we were told that was all it was going to be. And an agreement is agreement and you can't go back on it. And he took it one step further. And he argued, as a conservative Catholic, I'm afraid that my daughter's purity is going to be violated by these doctors, you know, during these exams. And that in itself tells you how charged the atmosphere around Catholicism in the modern era is around sexuality and illicit sexual assaults and so on. But Neumann said, right, she took the army and she said, well, I, you can't accuse me of being an out-of-control woman, right? I am just respecting the rules that my father set down for me in his household. Even as an adult woman, right, she maintained this, right, in her 20s and her 30s and her 40s. She continued to live in her father's house and said, you know, I'm going to respect my father's authority over the authority of the bishop, right? So I'm going to respect the commandment that says I need to respect the will of my parents, right, over the Council of Trent that says I need to respect my bishop, right? And so by ensconcing herself in this passive role within her household, she was able to be much more aggressive, you know, toward the the fathers of the church who were coming and in many ways attacking her. And so uh, she was also able to grow her power over time because she outlived a lot of her male protectors, her most important male protectors. And in the 20s, uh, many of them died in the 30s. And so after the war, she was left with a lot more autonomy after she was able to endure for so long. Your second question was about sexuality. And that, and um, essentially, uh, the argument I make here is that Neumann's obsession with moral purity and her desire to police sexuality, which, is, which was a very pronounced part of what she did, especially in the town of Konersreuth, right? And, and why did she do this? And why did she, you know, uh, promote her image as being chased so much? And what I found particularly revealing was some of the sources that suggested the widespread nature of sexual assault in rural settings, where uh, I believe it was her sister who wrote at one point that women in the countryside are particularly vulnerable to sexual assault, right? Um, but her sister argued, we don't do so because we fight them, right? We'll, we'll, we'll fight back and we'll protect our chastity, you know, no matter what. And you have these stories of Neumann prior to her accident in 1918, where she talked about fighting off two sexual assaults. One time she sort of leaped off uh, the loft in a barn to save herself from being uh, sexually assaulted. And another time a man kind of came on to her and told her to meet him at a certain point and uh, so when he showed up to meet her later that night, she, she, you know, hit him with a, with the handle of a horse whip or something like that to, to chase him off. Um, so her chasteness in many ways was a response to protecting oneself from this vulnerability. But what she also did and the, the other edge to this double-edged sword was that she tended to uh, use it also as a way to attack what she viewed as urban women or as women who took uh, a different view of sexuality than very conservative Catholic women. And essentially, she implied that when these women are, are sexually assaulted, you know, they're, they're, they're asking for it or something like that, right? That turned her into, and, and she tried to then turn Kona's right into something of a moral utopia where she, if people would you know, if if local establishments would try to host, uh, you know, dancing and things like that in a tavern, she'd organize boycotts of them, and she would get her priest, Father Yosef Naber, to condemn those people from the pulpit and things like that. And sexual purity also became a way to attack opponents. You know, she attacked one of her biggest critics 
And the family suggested that when he was examining her the first time he came, that he inappropriately touched her breasts, right? And so the family banned him from ever coming back again and was used as a way to kind of smear opponents as well. Well, that's what's so interesting about it is the way that she uses this to, essentially, like you say, use it as a bludgeon against her her opponents, but also against people who are attempting to assert control over her. So yeah, you know, she 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 did use it as a weapon against people trying to wield control over her. Absolutely right. And so uh, the this the the rector of the University of Würzburg, uh, Georg Wunderle, right? He was one of her more outspoken critics. And he devoted a lot of time to being very critical of her in public, right? Um, and yeah, and this was used by the family to try to suggest that his critiques came from the shame of having essentially trying tried to sexually assault her when he examined her, right? So, and if you get into the the era of the Third Reich, this gets a little bit more complicated, right? And in the era of the Third Reich there was actually an accusation against the Neumann family for protecting uh, a teacher in town who had sexually assaulted students. So there was a Catholic teacher who was loyal to the Neumann family who'd been accused of of sexually assaulting multiple, I believe, uh, girls uh, in in the school. And the Neumann family actually paid for his defense. And Theresa Neumann said in a state of exalted rest that, that he was innocent and so on. And we have no way of knowing, uh, or I, I at least was unable to find, I should say, the evidence that could point one way or, the, or, or another whether this teacher had actually sexually assaulted these students. But certainly, the Neumann family looked very hypocritical when I looked at these documents. And these documents really, in the 40s, they never made it to the public, right? Those charges. Uh, this was largely going on within the town. But one thing that they did, which was interesting, is there was a parochial vicar who the bishop had sent to the town to sort of keep an eye on the Neumann situation during the Third Reich, who was became kind of a very local enemy of, of the Neumann family. And he was one of the ones who uh, took up the charge in attacking this teacher for sexually assaulting girls. And the Neumann family then accused him of being the one who was sexually assaulting people in town. And so they tried to, you know, certainly they they look a lot less chaste and pure when one looks at this story, but they they also tried, in order to defend themselves, they tried to sort of flip the script on this parochial vicar. One thing I think that all of this reveals, and here I'm speculating somewhat because I don't have uh, a lot of archival evidence to, to back this up. But I think if one looks at the abuse scandals of the post-45 period, or even some of the morality trials that the, the Nazis conducted against Catholic priests, some of which were totally fabricated, but my understanding is that some of them were based on actual sexual misconduct that was taking place as well, that one sees how pervasive the the, the notion of sexual assault was within the larger Catholic subculture, right? And I can't say much more than that uh, without more evidence to look at it, but I think there certainly is a broader story there that if one could find the right type of uh, sources from this period might be able to reveal a little bit more. So looking ahead to now the Nazi years and the post-war Federal Republic, as I understand it, you're advancing three arguments about the significance of miracles generally and Neumann specifically. First, this wonderful turn of phrase, 
that Neumann and the other mystics under the Nazis were caught between excommunication and execution. Second, that pilgrimage became an act of dissent without ever offering any real opposition. And third, that engagement with miracles allowed Catholicism to continue this development into a more private form of faith. Can you unpack this for us? There's a lot <laughs> going on in these years. Okay. Um, so, I, you know, uh, I think the main, the main thing I could say about this era is, you know, I do – you know the title of the book is disruptive power and and i think i titled this chapter disruptive potential you know and and so i think uh you know part of the premise of the whole book is that these miracles had the power to disrupt right and so uh, to take your, your your final question first one way in which this disruption continued was through the personalization of religious faith right i think uh religious institutions were disrupted by this age of miracles uh and that the personalization of faith uh, occurred not exclusively because of, but at least in part because of this con- continued faith in miracles. And I think the Third Reich provided um, the uh, the context for a deeper privatization of faith because that is what the Nazis wanted, right? They wanted to stamp out public manifestations of Catholicism. They didn't like when the Catholics did their public processions. They didn't like when they were real public about marches to their pilgrimage sites. They didn't like the fact that they had their own youth groups at the start of the regime, right? And they wanted people to be, you know, in the Hitler youth. And so in in those ways, the, the Catholic Church was a threat to the coordination process in the early 30s and, and to the totalitarian nature of the Nazi state. And that led to um, the church responding in many ways with a privatizing faith, right? By having, in a lot of cases, and I don't cover this in the book, but in a lot of cases, a mother's groups became very active in maintaining religious faith in the home, and they became active within the parish itself, right? Things could go on within church walls that couldn't, you know, when they couldn't do, do things more publicly. And so I think in, in terms of miracles, you know, um, this private connection with God through religious faith in the miraculous. And, and you had these, you know, one example is these chain letters that people would send throughout the Third Reich as an act of the, this kind of piety. All right. And so I, I think in that way, the disruption continued. But the way, the reason why I call uh, the, the chapter Disruptive Potential has to do with whether or not these miracles disrupted the Third Reich as a state form or as a regime at all. And I think there was the potential to do so. And I think the Nazis were were threatened to a degree by the existence of these miraculous movements. But I think these movements didn't fulfill their potential for disruption. And Theresa Neumann and, and the, uh, certainly didn't as an individual, I would argue. And so what were, you, you can see the, the, the great potential for disruption. And there in a lot of the people who became victims of the Nazi regime who belonged to Theresa Neumann's Konerzreit circle. And I will say clearly, there are a lot of people who know something about the Konerzreit miracles who, who would dislike my interpretation here. Uh, Fritz Gerlich, who I haven't mentioned yet, but who was one of um, Theresa Neumann's most important advocates, and Rudolf Morzai has written a biography uh, recently just about Fritz Gerlich. You know, he's and he's been beatified by the Catholic Church. Um, he's a very interesting figure in his own right. He was a, a Protestant. He was an historian. He was an archivist. He was a journalist. He was an alcoholic and a divorcee. 
prior to meeting Trazen Neumann. He went to try to uncover Neumann as a fraud in the late 20s and wound up being completely devoted to her and then converting to Catholicism and at her instruction, reuniting with his wife, whom he had divorced. And he became a very prominent anti-Nazi figure. He published a newspaper that was deeply anti-Nazi in nature and he continued to publish it after the Nazis came to power in January of 1933. And for that reason, he was sent to Dachau and he was killed in Dachau, uh, if I'm not mistaken, on the night of the long knives. And he had several other people who were part of her circle who were imprisoned in concentration camps, who fled into exile, or who were murdered during the Third Reich. They weren't all murdered because of their association with her. In fact, most of them had other things about them that made them targets for the Nazi regime. But their association with her seemed to make them a little bit more suspicious. And so there was the potential for her to be this very subversive force, but she wasn't, right? And she ultimately downplayed her potential subversiveness. You know, when rumors about prophecies she made or anti-Nazi statements she made would go public, she would play them down. She would put out and sign public statements, you know, saying that she wasn't predicting negative things about the Nazis or wasn't saying negative things about the Nazis. Um, so you have a very mixed historical record of people who view the Koner's right circle as an anti-Nazi circle um, and those who view them as, as not being anti-Nazi. And in fact, I think the reality was, uh, number one, Theresa Neumann's most vital concern was survival. And I think she had very real concerns during this era. The church, uh, right before the Nazi rise to power, had taken even more aggressive steps against her in 1932. They banned people from even uh, Catholics from even publishing about her. And then that became even worse when the Nazis, of course, uh, took control over the press in the country after 33. Uh, And so there was a big public silence about her uh, during this time. And the church was pushing very hard for another examination during the Third Reich. And so she felt vulnerable in that way. And uh, what was even more perilous for her was there were a few figures within the SS who really wanted her to be institutionalized by the state. And if you look at uh, the way in which, you know, so-called uh, asocials or people uh, who had disabilities, you know, how they were treated during the Third Reich, uh, she certainly could have been subject to something much worse. So I think she backed off largely for survival, and she did successfully survive. And she was able to move in the post-45 era, Right. As someone who had survived, who hadn't been crushed by the regime because of, in some cases, being more taking a more passive role, but because of the many instances of people in her circle who had been persecuted or, or injured in some way by the regime, she could also claim anti-Nazi credentials in the aftermath of the war. Well, this is another really interesting theme, is the way that the miracles end up legitimizing and driving post-war Christian democracy. So on the one hand, there is this surge of Marian apparitions after 45, and the debates around them, as you show, provide this way to resolve tensions around anti-communism, anti-consumerism, and the refugee crisis. But on the other hand, they're fueling a revolt against the church-state alliance under Adenauer. And yet, the most surprising thing is this is only a 15-year, a very intense 15-year phenomenon, and then it's gone. So talk us through that. What happened there? Okay. So I think if you look in the post-45 era, you you had two, I had two different things I was looking at. One was finishing the story about Theresa Neumann and Kronos Wright, 
And the other was looking at this a surge of Marian apparitions, right? And you had more Marian apparitions in the period from, if you start with the ones that began in the Third Reich in 1937, and if you trace them from, say, 37 to, say, 57, that 20-year period, you had more occur or and be recorded as, as having created movements and people who paid attention to them in this period than I, probably any other, certainly any other period in the modern era in the 19th or 20th century. So that in itself is really interesting and fascinating, right? And the the most prominent of these was in Haraldsbach, a Bavarian town in the Diocese of Bamberg. But you had others, you know, you had miracles in Fairbach and Rodalben, which were both uh, in the Diocese of Speyer in the state of of the the Rhineland Palatinate, Rhineland-Pfalz. You had some that, that cropped up in the Rhineland as well. And, you know, you had had a couple others in the Northwest. So uh, they sort of spread across regions, even though they did have this sort of Bavarian base to them. And Haraldsbach was certainly the most prominent. The figure I often see cited is that 1.5 million people visited Haraldsbach between uh, the first apparition or claim to an apparition of the Virgin Mary in the late 40s and when the Virgin Mary said goodbye to everybody or to the seers in, I believe it was 1952. And uh, what's interesting to me about Haraldsbach and many of these other pilgrimages, and, and, you, and you cite a lot of the things that went along with it, but is you do see this continued uh, rebellion. And in some case, the Haraldsbach case, the people, uh, the lay commission, as it became known in Haraldsbach, are the leaders of this miracle movement in Haraldsbach, which was not led by the girls who saw the Virgin Mary, but by a lot of the men in town. They were, in many ways, the most disruptive force in this whole book, and they were much, even more rebellious than the Konersreut rebels. Uh, you know, uh, and they, as you say, they were they were burning everything to the ground in many ways. They took on the local clergy. The, initially, their local priest supported the apparition, but he was uh, ultimately excommunicated by the church for continuing to believe in the miracles and replaced by someone who was hostile to the miracles. So they rebelled against local clergy, uh, against their local bishop in Bamberg. They rebelled against also uh, the local Christian Social Union, or CSU. And they even went so far as to promote uh, voting for parties other than the CSU in local elections. And interestingly, the only, uh, although I'm not saying that Harold's Bach was the reason for this, but the only uh, time I believe the CSU ever lost an election was in, in Bavaria was in 1954 in, in the midst of a lot of this. So they they were very disruptive in, in pushing what, what I would argue is this personalization of faith and this faith that did not rely upon you know an institutional church and and um, it was built around these miracles. And here I also use Tilvan Rodden's uh, article in German history where he talks about clumsy Democrats and in some ways the Heraldsbach. Uh, lay commission, the people, the the men who supported this pilgrimage, they were the clumsiest of Democrats because what they ultimately did was they used an argument against having a church that played too big a role in the state in order to argue in favor of being able to create a cult around the miracles of Haraldsbach. You know, they said um, the CSU and the church, you know, coming after us, and sometimes the church would sue them and things like that, and they argued. You know, this is an instance of the Catholic Church having too big a role in the new federal republic, and we need a separation of church and state so that 
religious people like ourselves can practice our faith the way we want to practice it, right? And they began using liberal democratic arguments essentially to, you know, to take on uh, Christian democracy and 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 uh, the church-state alliance that was at the heart of the Christian Democratic Union. So that was interesting. Uh, and then I think Theresa Neumann's history tells us something. I won't get into all of it here, but why does it come to such a crashing halt? Why, when she dies in 1962, was she kind of the last uh, miracle worker standing of this whole movement at that point? And I think if you look what happened with her image in the 50s is in many ways, she goes from being a deeply sacred figure to being something of a symbol of the she came to symbolize something about Bavaria, right? A symbol of Bavarian identity as much as she was a religious figure by the late 50s that a lot of people came to view her. I wouldn't necessarily say in secular terms, but certainly in less profoundly religious terms. And she also, you know, in the 50s and 60s, she and her family began devoting themselves to much more, I guess, entrepreneurial concerns. I mean, they were religious in nature in some ways, but, you know, her her brother, who became uh, a politician in the CSU, uh, was forced to leave the CSU in scandal because he'd been involved in this wine smuggling scandal. And one reason why he was doing this is that the Neumann family wanted to be able to buy property abroad in case uh, the the Cold War went south and the Russians invaded. They were right on the borderland with Czechoslovakia, you know. But they were they were interested in more materialism, and and then she became very interested, I think, in her material legacy toward the end of her life, where she devoted a lot of her attention to raising money to building a seminary and a convent near Koner's Right, which again are very religious endeavors, but it, it it's a different sort of thing than, you know, where earlier in her life, she seemed devoted to, or at least she claimed to be devoted to converting sinners and uh, getting as many people to be Catholic as possible. It seemed she became more concerned with an institutional legacy toward the end of her life. And I think that speaks to the way in which the economic miracle uh, and the commercialization of the economy and the consumerism of the economy sort of was was winning winning the day by the late 1950s and uh, that's of course mark edward ruff has published a lot about how that played a role in secularizing catholic germany as well well it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the other side of the microphone here today but <laughs> as usual the traditional question before we go what are you planning next you've got this whole other book lined up yeah so my i'm working on another book and it's about women, gender, and sexuality, I would say, in uh, the German Catholic Church from the 20s to the 60s. I'm looking at the same time period, but I'm largely looking at primarily at women's associations, the two main women's Catholic women's associations in Germany, and then uh, some movements by men that uh, I'm looking at a male morality league in Germany and the movement around the Jesuit preacher Johannes Lepisch in the 50s. And I'm looking at the interaction of women trying to gain an autonomy with the church and their interactions with the patriarchy as represented by these other groups. But I'm also um, particularly interested in how the Catholics of Germany responded to papal encyclicals in 1930 and 1968 about birth control. Well, when the time comes, we'll be happy to have you back on. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Well, that does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. Once again, we've been hearing from Michael O'Sullivan about disruptive power, Catholic women, miracles, and politics in modern Germany.
1918 to 1965. Disruptive Power, available from University of Toronto Press as of 2018, is the deserving recipient of the Waterloo Centre for German Studies Book Prize. Disruptive Power offers fresh perspective on the deep history of political Catholicism and Christian democracy, both political juggernauts in German history. So, it will be of immense interest to anyone dealing with either of these movements specifically, or the cultural history of Germany more broadly. It's also chock full of colorful characters you might imagine, so it's a good read to boot. Anyway, with that, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and hope to see you next time. Until then.